Welcome back to another episode of Timber Connect. We're here to help forest enthusiasts explore their curiosities among like-minded people. People who embrace innovation, strive to make a difference, and aspire to continuously improve how we manage our forests. My name is Ty, and in each episode, Julie and I will be diving into research, contentious forestry issues, and industry perspectives from the professionals you want to hear from. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Timber Connect podcast. Ty and Julie here. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Lacey Rose, a registered professional forester with the Ontario Professional Foresters Association. In addition to her main role as the Renfrew County Forester, Lacey is also the host of the webinar series, Mighty Jobs, and the co-founder of Women in Wood, an advocacy group that was created to bring passionate women together to share their love of the woods. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Lacey, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you guys. Thank you. My pleasure. So before we get into some of the awesome work that you're doing, I was hoping you could maybe help our audience get to understand who you are a bit better and provide a bit of a background. Like, how did you even get into forestry? Sure. So I've been a forester coming up to 15 years now. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> but I am from Labrador and I had no idea what forestry was growing up. I grew up in a mining town and I watched the movie Fern Gully when I was eight, which made me a environmental terrorist to my poor father who would be collecting wood for the fire at the cabin, which is made out of wood, as I played with my cardboard boxcar made out of wood outside in the snow. Um, so really, I had no concept about what it meant to cut trees. I just thought it was bad because I saw it in a movie when I was a kid, which I feel like every generation has that movie and it's probably created lots of annoying little kids like me. So, you know, I finished high school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I stayed in Labrador City and went to the College of North Atlantic for university transfer year, which is basically just like a first year of university that you could transfer wherever. And at that point, I was really lucky to have a biology professor who saw that I was a keener and was like, what do you want to do? And well, I really like being outside and being at the cabin and I, I want to work like wildlife maybe. And he said, have you looked into forestry? And I said, what's that? And then he pushed me towards the University of New Brunswick to check out their program. And honestly, the hook was they were advertising a 95% employment rate at the time. And I thought that was pretty impressive considering I just wanted to have a job when I was finished. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, and anyway, so off I went. And honestly, I was a bit of an anomaly there and that I didn't come from a forestry family or had no exposure before and I found it was a really steep learning curve but I'm so glad that I stuck it out. I did end up doing a minor in wildlife and uh, I do think that I practice wildlife biology and management every day as a forester so I think that's a a pretty important connection for us to make as forestry people that we're not just about trees. We are managing all aspects of the forest. 100%. Yeah, I totally agree. I also watched Fern Gully growing up <laughs> and had the same view. So I don't know how I ended up in forestry either because I have a very similar story. I had no one in my family was in forestry. Like I just was knew I liked working outside, but I like science and like wanted to do something like tangible. And then their forestry was. <laughs> I think it, it's funny, our perceptions, because I still had those ideas when I went to school for forestry, that it was bad to cut trees. And I was like, I'm going to save the forest. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do for my job. But then I realized once I started actually working in forestry and like meeting forestry workers that 
they really care a lot about forests and by managing forests and making them valuable and in a controlled way that has many, many binders of rules before you can cut one tree. But that's how we protect forests. I completely agree. Like one of the things that when I first started forestry, when you say forestry to someone, the, the first thing that crossed their mind is logging or mm-hmm. lumberjack, you know, that kind of perception of forestry. But once you get into the industry and you realize that there's so many stewards of so many different disciplines that really, truly care about the environment that are out there trying to make policies that really, truly work. And it's just, uh, it's such a great industry. One of the things that I wanted to touch base with you about is I know that you do a lot of public outreach and you had mentioned, you know, you yourself growing up, you didn't really know what forestry was or what it meant. What do you think one of the most important things that we can teach youth these days about forestry and how do we get them excited? Yeah, that's kind of something I started doing passively. I'm really lucky that the job that I have right now as the county forester involves a component of education and outreach. So going to classrooms was kind of how I started and all ages and you never know what you're going to get. But I think the most important and easy message is that trees grow back. Mm -hmm. And honestly, people just have these pictures in their minds of the David Suzuki report clear cut of just like the aftermath of likely like a clearing for a Walmart or something. Uh, Mm. But it's the scar on the landscape. And that's like the snapshot that people and even children have in their minds about what forestry is. And whereas that couldn't be further from the truth. We can very simply explain that. And I I like to take pictures of of the the vigorously growing back trees, you know. So, for example, an area that we clear cut last year, three months after an area had been logged, the poplar were taller than me that were growing back. That's easy to show people. You can take them there. You can show them pictures. You can explain like we're legally obligated to make sure that trees grow back. And just checking that box of public understanding, I think, would would do a lot for the perception of what forestry is. It doesn't equal deforestation. We're here to make sure that forests continue into the future. Yeah, I totally agree. Deforestation is is a you know real hot topic, maybe a little bit more south of the border, maybe even further south. But here in in BC and definitely in Canada, we have such stringent policies that are in place, you know, like each tree that's cut, a tree is planted, or you're going to have that natural region come back in. So that's such a good point to kind of bring forward to them. But also just the fact that like, it's a fun job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you go to a classroom and tell kids like, hey, I walk around in the woods for fun and I bring my dog. They all want to be like you, you know, like we just don't tell the fun stuff enough. And I think everyone can do that. So if if we could all maybe do that a little bit more, we could have a whole squad of future forestry folks out there. Yeah, definitely. I would love that. What about with older folks, like your general taxpaying citizens? Have you ever had to interact with them in terms of outreach? And how have you dealt with negative perception? Yeah, I think like being patient and understanding and like giving your mm-hmm. time goes a long way with people and everyone's entitled to their opinion. Uh, But my experience is that folks that have negative impressions have only had the opportunity to form their opinions based on one side of the story. So traditionally, forestry has not done a good job of telling our side of the story. And when you take the time to express that to someone, 
I can't think of one time when that has happened that there hasn't been like a oh at the end. And they might not be like rah-rah forestry by the <laughs> end of it, but they acknowledge that I'm speaking to them as a professional who manages the forest and I have right. a lot of respect for the forest and that I'm not signing off on anything that's going to do what they think is happening. You know, just that little bit of education and patience and and being generous with your time, even though you don't have it. You don't have yeah. the time, but yeah. like that's what needs to happen. And when you can talk to people about the things that they're worried about, that might not be your job. But so right now people are really worried about climate change. They're really worried about forest health. Like in my area, there's all these invasive species and mm -hmm. right now all the cedars are turning brown and people are panicking. But like I can give them information about that. But then I can also talk to them about how we're managing forests. And we have the credibility as professionals because we are well-rounded and we have to know all this stuff, but we don't often get an, enough opportunity to interact with the public to make them realize that we're here for all parts of the forest, not just the cutting of trees. Right. That whole management component seems to kind of get lost in a lot of the discussions because they do, like a lot of people just see the end product. They see the, the cup block and they think, oh, they must just be pillaging the land or, you know, they're, they're just cutting whatever they want and they don't see the whole net down process that goes behind a couple of, you know, they don't mm -hmm. see the, the conservation values that are getting put in place and the, the buffers and the protection. They just see the harvest unit. So I think that's such a good approach to kind of approach it from that management level and say, no, look, there's a lot that goes in. You know, we have RP bios come into our field sites. We have PGOs come into our field sites. We have Indigenous leaders come in to come do cultural modification and look at their aspect of things. So it's just so such an important thing to to get out there into the public. I totally agree. I'm sure you're familiar with everything going on with in BC with our old growth and everything that's going on. I'm not super familiar with Ontario forestry. Do you guys have any similar issues, contentious issues like that beyond just the general dislike of logging? Ah, uh, for sure. We have our own battles out here. Um, every couple of years, it seems to surface, and this is particularly important to the area that I live in, is the uh, Stop Logging in Algonquin Park campaigns. Mm. I was lucky enough to work in Algonquin Park for a period of mm. time. I know that they hold themselves to a higher standard than anywhere else in Ontario, and it was created as a park to protect it as a timber resource, actually, in the beginning. <laughs> And then, of course, became also a recreational area. But, you know, in in those cases, it's a lot of uh, misinformation in the campaigns and and what the one sided information. All of us collectively as a forest sector telling the, the truth about the matter is really mm -hmm. the, the most powerful thing about that. Also, species at risk, huge in Ontario. So I work and live in central Ontario. So our big one is turtles. We have a lot of turtles uh, and a lot of them are classed as at risk. Uh, but the challenge with that is they are actually everywhere, you know. <laughs> yeah. I can't sit and have my lunch next to a wetland without seeing turtles at a certain time of year. That's awesome. <laughs> I have like a lot of turtle selfies from helping them cross roads <laughs> and things like that. Like I love them. They're so cool. Yeah. But there's a disconnect between the science and understanding about what actually impacts a species like turtles and mm. the zero risk approach to mm -hmm. forest management. So the impacts of having turtle protection means that you can't operate in the woods for a very large part of the year. 
you know, restrictions on roads, landings, pits, the type of management even is starting to come into play, uh, which that has such a big impact when you start putting buffers on bodies of water and wetlands and streams. Like you can be wiping out entire areas that should be and have been managed. Whereas on public roads, I find them smushed all the time by just Mm. cars driving by. So it's it's kind of frustrating to the forestry community. um, And it's been a big hurdle for us to try to have the conversations about what we're doing that already protects them uh, versus how much risk are we taking, which right now is very little, and how much is the appropriate amount. Hmm. That is so interesting. (laughs) It is. I've never... Personally, in my career at NBC, I don't think we have too many, too many turtles, to be honest, in the, in the fields where we're at. But I have seen the little turtle highways that go that parallel roads sometimes. And I, I didn't know what they were at first. And then I, I was told that it's, it's like an alternative route for the turtles to go to keep them off the roads. And I thought that was a really cool practice. It is cool. And it's so weird. Like, I feel like Snow White sometimes in the woods because it <laughs> feels like all these things just come out to greet me. They're just being like, hey, just want you to know that I'm here. You know, like. I used to say, oh, turtles don't travel to the woods. But then, you know, you see one and you're like, what are you doing out here? And they just seem to appear wherever you are. So they're they're definitely uh, seemingly, from my anecdotal observations, a pretty Hmm. healthy population here, which is amazing to see, especially when you consider that all of the forest here has been managed through time. They continue to thrive in those environments. So... Hopefully science can reflect that in the future. Yes, hopefully. I've definitely had some struggles and also ups and downs, of course, with being a woman in forestry. But I was just hoping you could speak a little bit to your experience about being a woman in forestry. Yeah, so I didn't realize that forestry was a male-dominated profession when I picked it. (laughs) Like I said, I was completely ignorant to what forestry was. Um, Even in school, I think it was 8 out of 32 of my classmates were women. So I still didn't really like click on that. This was male dominated. Um, it wasn't really until I started working that I realized, hey, I, I'm the only woman in this room. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> uh, and also like the age, lack of age diversity at the time when I started. Mm. So there was not many people under 50 oh, wow. uh, when I started. So for me, none of that was a negative experience. Yeah, I was definitely the oddball. But I think that there's power in that. Mm-hmm. And like any young person starting out in any profession, like you have to earn your credibility. And I worked hard to get that, not because I was a woman, but just because that's my my nature, um, you know, taking on every task that I could to to learn more and help where I could. In the end, I think that having a different perspective, different background, different ideas, different generation of technology quickly was recognized as a benefit to have. Uh, I've also been really lucky with the people that I've been surrounded with, like really supportive coworkers and mentors and people who lifted me up and stood up for me when I did get a little bit of that is it take your kid to work day kind of attitude. Yeah. <laughs> and and them responding, well, actually, this is the person who's going to sign the forest management plan that will keep you employed. You know, like there's we will all face these barriers no matter what our gender background, age, anything is. And having a support network is a really valuable thing. But recognizing that, you know, you you need to walk the walk <laughs> if, if you want to be respected in the forestry field. And uh, 
that that comes with with time and experience as well. Yeah. What spurred you and your friend Jess to found Women in Wood? Good question. Um, it actually started as a joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because we would, me, me and Jess met because we were almost always the only women or, and like, especially young women at like conferences and things like that. And we would just be hanging out with the guys having a beverage after at the end of the day. And we started like joking that we were going to start a rebuttal to the old boys club. (laughs) And then one time we actually just did it. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) And started a, a private Facebook group and invited like the 20 women that we knew in forestry at that time. That was in 2015. So sector looked a lot different at that time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's grown to almost 3,000 women all over the world. And I'm really encouraged by the number of young women entering the field right now. I think that we are definitely progressing towards a more diverse looking sector. Yeah, I totally agree. When you guys started, I was still in school. I wish I had known about it <laughs> sooner. <laughs> like we are not an official organization and we everything that's happened has been volunteer power no zero budget uh mailing t-shirts out of my dining room (laughs) you know it's it's pretty low-key uh but i think the value of it is the network itself and the women in the network are women in wood like it's not us doing it it's everyone supporting each other and creating those connections and helping each other out yeah so awesome yeah i even remember one of my stillwater programs we had typically they would be like the forestry training programs that we offer with stillwater um, we have 12 students. Lots of times it would be, you know, 10 men, maybe one or two females in, in the program. My last one in mission, we actually had 10 women, two, two guys. And that was one of the best cohorts I had. They were so <laughs> keen. Everyone, it was just, it flowed so well. So I absolutely love seeing the progression and the, the inclusivity in industry that people are recognizing that this is for everyone of all walks of life and that you can have a really successful and admirable career in forestry. So I love what women in wood kind of advocates for. So you started in 2015. How's, how's the traction been with that? Like what I see, it's got a good following now on, on the socials. Yeah, it's been steady. It's funny because like we never really set out to accomplish anything, (laughs) but it was at that time, no one was really talking about it. Like gender diversity was not a topic. Mm-hmm. And it's like we kind of just like lit a match and we're like, hey, did you know that there's only 17% of the forest sector made up of women? And we weren't saying like, hey, there's barriers or anything. It, it just somebody has said it uh, in one of their blog posts. If you can see it, you can be it. And you just couldn't really see very many examples of women, especially in leadership or or doing like field work even, you know, like Mm -hmm. we knew that they were out there, but they just never really got a a light shone on them. So at first we were doing a lot of like featuring women in the woods and just posting their pictures and being like, meet so-and-so operations forester. And and just that the power of, of seeing that that is a real job for anyone was something to start other conversations and we definitely would not consider ourselves experts on this topic (laughs) but yeah we've learned a lot from women in the sector sharing their stories and to to what is helping or hindering them so it's been really interesting experience that's so great and for anyone listening today if they wanted to 
check that out if we just pique their curiosity where can they find yeah, women on wood for sure so there's a website womeninwood.ca that you can find links to everything including our blog but we're on twitter instagram linkedin and the private facebook group is for those who identify as women it's a safe space for all those conversations that take place but yeah everyone is welcome at, on all the other places <laughs> I love so great Speaking of Twitter, um, I've followed you for a little bit from afar and uh, <laughs> love some of the stuff that you have going on. I see quite recently that you had the opportunity to speak at the World Forestry Congress in Seoul, South Korea. Tell me all about that. How did that go? What's forestry like over there? Um, how was the reception from people? So curious. Yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And I'm really grateful that I did get the opportunity to go over there. Basically, a couple of years ago, I became involved with a developing network called the Global Network for Forestry Young Professionals, or 4YP. So I'm on the inaugural board for that. And it, it launched at the World Forestry Congress. So it's basically a similar concept to Women in Wood, but for forestry professionals all over the world, because we have less opportunity as almost maxed out of this bracket, but young people. <laughs> Um, to, to build our professional networks, you know, we don't always get the opportunity to go to conferences and mm -hmm. building those relationships are important. So it's kind of a new age way to do that and find out what people are doing in other parts of the world in forestry. So that was one of the reasons I was there. But the other reason was that I was asked to speak about my path as a, a young professional, uh, which, as I said, I'm kind of diverging on a different path, <laughs> but I, I think I have had a, a very fortunate time uh, in my career, especially with like the people that I've had supporting me and just I was sharing the lessons that I've learned along the way um, as part of a session for young professionals in the sector. That is so cool. Was, was there any standout moments for you, like other speakers or anything else like that that happened? Uh, I think it was really neat to meet folks <laughs> from other parts of the world. And I think like the, the eye opener for me was how much of a bubble I operate in, <laughs> um, in Ontario forestry. And even it made me reflect on, you know, I don't even really know much about forestry in BC because it, we're all very busy, um, doing our actual jobs and we don't really have time to like know about what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. And at the World Forestry Congress, it was very global speaking and strategic level. And it made me realize like, yeah, I'm doing all this, but at like a very practical level. And I don't know what anyone else is doing. Right. So it, it made me want to uh, find a way to, to better do that because I never would have gone to the World Forestry Congress if it wasn't for the reasons that brought me there. And it it kind of made me think about like how how can we better uh, share our experiences, even with practical forestry, even within Canada. There seems to be a bit of a gap there, and I I would love to know like oh I have a problem like what's someone in New Brunswick doing about this and oh yeah that is so cool is is forestry like big over there in Seoul South Korea or is it was it just hosted there. So they are leading the pack in the reforestation era of forestry. So I guess there was almost complete deforestation during 
war times or earlier, and they've made a lot of effort and progress towards increasing forest cover. So now they have a lot of forested area. And from what I hear, they're trying to make the transition from the public opinion and management of that's a forest must stay as forest to, oh, we, maybe we should start managing these to keep them healthy and, and keep them growing. So that's the hurdle that they're in the process of, of transitioning from planting and protecting trees to managing them for wood products and to improve their vigor. I, I guess I just never thought of South Korea being really kind of, you know, in the, in the forestry space like that. That's really, that's something totally new to me. That's so great. Well, I think uh, from my experiences as a Canadian in an international conversation about forestry is that uh, we are the envy of a lot of the world for our natural forests and our wildness. Like when I post pictures of, I don't consider the forests that I work in very wild because they're not very isolated and they're not huge tracts of land. But when I post pictures of the forests that I work in, people in the UK are like, wow, I can't believe how wild the forests are there. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it, it's just, we, we live in a different world here and we don't realize it. And I think that is uh, probably the source of some of our public perception is that the public has this expectation of of what forests are here and and what they should be. But the funny thing is, is that we're, we're maintaining that <laughs> through <Yeah>. forestry. <laughs> yeah. But it, it looks wild still. And that that's, that's something else that's pretty cool to do is when people have anti-forestry views, if you take them to a managed forest and they think that it's an unmanaged forest, and then you say, hey, there's a stump over there. Yeah. <laughs> this actually was managed. And yeah. just that, that perception of, of what it means to, to manage a forest and, and still be wild. I totally agree. I would take my students to this one field site um, at the Vancouver Island University woodlot. And I wouldn't tell them we're going into a woodlot. At this point, we haven't even talked about what a woodlot is. And we walk into this one stand that I remember my engineering prof would basically just start drooling the minute we walked in because you have these massive Douglas fir. And everyone just thinks, oh, this must be an old growth forest. Like, wow, this is so natural. And, and I kind of have to break to them. No, this was actually commercially thinned. There was fertilizer treatments applied to this. And look, look at the outcome. Like, this is a managed forest. There's parks and trails that go through it. They just, they just don't connect all those dots without kind of being informed and told like mm -hmm. no there's so much behind management that you just don't see do you find that to be an aha moment for people oh you can i can watch the light bulbs go off in their head like wow i love that yeah me too so that kind of segue to another question for you about the renfrew county forest is there anything exciting that you have going on in there any new kind of innovation or practices that that you get to implement there? Renfrew County Forest is a really cool place to be a forester. Um, map is behind me. It's, it's really oh, cool. small scale. So it's only 6,500 hectares spread out over 53 different tracks, but I do all the aspects of managing it. So that is how I've learned the most that I have come to learn about forestry and forests is because I do the before, during, and after. So I can really learn from the practices that I implement, um, but it can be a lot <laughs> for, for one person, uh, sometimes two. And 
I'm I'm actually right now looking into getting a drone. I want to mm-hmm. jump on the I, I feel like I've become a little behind in technology, but climate change is like really a thing. And we are seeing more and more disturbances here. Seems like we have a major windstorm every year. We just had another one at the end of May, which is super unusual to have a giant windstorm in May. So instead of walking 10 tracks looking for blowdown, it would be a lot more make a lot more sense to just throw a drone up there and and map it out and see if it needs more walking instead of actually walking all of it. So yeah. I'm trying I'm trying to get with the times. Um I feel like it's easy to fall behind in technology when you don't have young people coming on board to teach you what they learned in school and things like that. So making an effort to to stay up with it is <laughs> definitely important to me. But you know, I, it's not new, but the thing that I love about Renford County and Renford County Forest is that the, the the mills that operate in this area and the people that work in these forests are multi-generational. Like one of the mills here is in its seventh generation. Wow. And it's <laughs> not new, but it is to me, like the coolest thing about forestry is to see how invested people are in the long-term sustainability. And these folks, like I've never met a logger that I didn't like come to respect so much for the care that they exhibit in the forest. And also they're just like really excited to tell you when they've (laughs) done something great or found something cool and made sure they protected it and then tell you about it to make sure that it's protected enough. And I don't know, my heart just explodes with happiness on a regular basis from talking to these people. So that's my favorite part of this scale of management is just getting to really work with the people at all the levels of forest management. I think that's something that would surprise people too, is a lot of loggers, even in BC, they do care a lot. I mean, we're not trying to run ourselves out of a job, right? So even that alone, let alone people caring for the forest, just inherently for it being a forest is, I think, a piece that people don't realize. Absolutely. Yeah. I also want to applaud you for potentially introducing drones. I'm currently obsessed with drones. I don't, I haven't flown one, but I just, I see so much use in forest management with drones as a good as a tool to kind of support us. Do you think that you'll fly the drone or are you going to have someone else fly it? Oh, it's got to be me. There's nobody else. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm looking at a really small one that I can actually just like put in my cruising vest. And when I get to an impasse, like a wetland that cannot be crossed, instead of having to go back and maybe take it from a different direction, I can just like see if I need to go over there for anything. So if I'm timber cruising or, you know, like looking for blowdown instead of going that, uh, you know, spending another four hours trying to figure it out on foot, you know, like we have the tools now and like the little ones you don't even need a license for. And uh, anyway, I don't know how to drive a drone yet. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to figure it out. I mean, that was one of the things at the World Forestry Congress. They actually had like a little netted area set up. Oh, no way. Like racing drones or something. Oh, that's cool. So they're becoming like, it seems like really normal. And I've been kind of kicking myself for a while. You know, it seems like everyone's doing this now. So I'm going to have to figure it out. My partner works up north, even more north than where I am. And a lot of cases when they're like checking out different areas of their TSA, the timber supply area, 
instead of having to use the helicopter, which is really timely and costs, it's expensive, they just toss up a drone and let her go and they can see just as well. Ty and I also spoke with a good friend of mine who's doing his PhD in remote sensing. And he's doing a really cool project where he's using drones to create a like monitoring network for a regenerating forest. So like in BC, once our trees reach a certain height, they're kind of, you know, free, free of obligation, grow. free yeah. to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's using drones to monitor trees that are the in-between stage of they're already free to grow. So we're not looking at them anymore or generally people aren't until that point where they're able to be harvested again. And so there's just so much cool work with the drones it's pretty crazy i think he didn't he go i think he called them mid rotation stands which is yeah so important because yeah we put all this investment and all this money into establishing the stand and then it reaches free to grow and we just walk like, away see ya <laughs> bye yeah. good luck you know? totally. yeah and inventory is such a hot topic and do you think that in the future is it on your agenda to maybe get lidar put onto a drone or do you just kind of right now just testing it out who knows? Um, right now, LIDAR is not very helpful for the Great Lakes St. Lawrence forest because the species hasn't really been figured out. And honestly, uh, I don't think there will ever be a time when you don't have to walk the whole forest in this area. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that I do like to tell people when they are concerned about trees being harvested. Let's count the boots that have walked this entire area before one tree gets cut. The person collecting the inventory information and writing the prescription. The person doing the tree marking, because we actually tree mark every hectare that should be harvested here. Mm -hmm. The person doing the layout. The person actually getting ready and bringing the operators there. Then the operators themselves, the compliance people. So we're up to like seven pairs of boots (laughs) at least for every hectare. But just because of the diversity of the forest here and the variability, like you really do need that hands-on management. But there's definitely areas where you can reduce that. And also like workforce shortage is a serious problem here. So if we don't have to be doing free-to-grow surveys by foot for every hectare, and if you could do that by drone, that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Because you just can't get people to do that anymore. Yeah, we're having a labor shortage in BC as well. It's Mm -hmm. I don't know where everybody went. <laughs> I, really, I really like, but let's count the boots that have been in this mm-hmm. forest. I've never heard that um, kind of saying, because it's so true. I mean, like any project will go through a dozen hands at any time, right? Going from layout phase to planting to all of it. It's, yeah. yeah. there's so many people involved in making these projects work. It's a really cool, cool way to think of it. Let's count the boots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's make it a Twitter trend. There we go. <laughs> That's Ty's job. He's the Twitter guy. So okay. get on it, Ty. <laughs> so we don't want to take up too much of your time. We have one more question for you, kind of when we always like to ask our guests at the end of the episode. So as someone who's probably seen many people come and go, and obviously you've worked with a lot of other young professionals and entry-level workers, what would you say is the most common mistake made by those people? And how would you suggest they avoid making it? Ooh, okay. I think... Getting your start is very hard in forestry. And I did this myself. I limited my expectations. Like I was like, I want to live in New Brunswick. I want to do wildlife work. And that was like all I would apply to at first. So of course I didn't get a job. But I then I kind of had a realization that I really want to make this work for myself. So I applied to every single job on the job board and in all areas. <laughs> and my first job was 
spraying pesticides in Denver, Colorado, driving a giant truck around. Oh. Uh, but I had to take something to get mm-hmm. something on my resume. Yep. So I think the mistake is to just limit yourself and just take it with a grain of salt that you have the potential to really make it in this sector, but you need to have something on your resume to get where you need to go. So just being willing to try new things, maybe it's possible that you will like something that you don't think you will like. So I had no desire to work in industrial forestry when I was a student, but then that was the jobs that I got after the the Denver one. And I loved it. (laughs) I did not think that I was going to love that, but I, that was like the best. I, yeah, I had some amazing experiences and you just, you don't know what you're going to like. So try a lot of things and be willing to kind of put yourself out there. I love that. Great advice. I know when I finished my schooling, I had a spreadsheet three different pages long of just you companies and places. And I hit every single one because I had a job right out of grad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I totally agree with that. And I tried not to limit myself because, you know, it, a hard reality for a lot of people in forestry is we take our schooling in large urban centers and the jobs are going to be not in those large urban centers. So you're going to have to maybe put in some time and invest in your career and establish that reputation and that credibility. So then you can go and promote yourself for a different position, maybe a little higher up in an organization where you do get to be home, a larger center. So I really resonate with that. I think that's great advice. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lacey. Thanks for the invitation. Really nice to meet you guys. It was really nice meeting you as well. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Timber Connect. If you'd like to hear more, you can search for us on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at TimberConnect or visit our website at TimberConnect.ca. That's all for this episode. We'll catch you again next time.